This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Welcome to Friday Break with John Gibbs on Teachers Talk Radio. This week, my guest is Dr. Jennifer Chung, lecturer in early years education at the University College London, and also the author of three books on the education system of Finland. We discuss that system and wonder, are they really that good? And if so, how did they do it? And can we learn anything? This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. And we're back. It's Friday the 9th of December. And if you're listening to this live, it's not really live because it's a podcast and I've pre-recorded this interview. But you could be listening to it at Friday morning before break at school. In which case, I hope you're looking forward to the weekend and it won't be long until Christmas. I don't know if you've ever imagined what the ideal education system might be like. We've all got our own ideas, probably. Smart uniforms, disciplined schools cricket fields, a slap of leather on willow, or something more progressive. But imagine an education system where students left school in the early afternoons. The days were short. Teachers were addressed by their first names. Schools had a high level of autonomy. There was no such thing as Ofsted, no inspections. Schools worked cooperatively together, helping and supporting each other. Inspecting each other, yes, but not judgmentally. No rankings, no competition, and again, no Ofsted. In this system, teachers were highly esteemed, so highly esteemed that it was harder to become a teacher than a doctor. Parents didn't worry about which school to send their children to. The local school was always good enough. A system where there were no SATs tests, no GCSEs. In fact, students sat very few exams just at the very end of their school career. A system where vocational education was every bit as esteemed as academic. Could such a system really exist? Well, I'm not describing a fantasy school. I'm describing the system they have in Finland. My guest this week, Dr. Jennifer Chung, has written three books on the education system of Finland. Why? Because 20 years ago, the world was astonished to discover by the PISA test, that's the Programme for International Student Assessment run by the OECD, or the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, in other words, a highly respected international school league table, which compared schools across the world on the basis of literacy in English, science and maths. 20 years ago, this assessed Finland as having the best schools in the world. Today, they are still in the top 10 schools in the world, above the United States and Britain and most other countries on the planet. And yet, the education system I described is a fair representation 
of the Finnish school system. The questions I wanted to have answered with my expert guest was how did they do it? Is it really that good? Can you trust the PISA test? Could we copy anything they've done? Maybe all of it, maybe some of it. But above all, how did they do it? And so welcome to my guest this week, Dr. Jennifer Chung of UCL. Of course, Jennifer, I'm sure you do many things other than write books about Finnish education, but you, I know your, your specialist area or the thing that you're interested in, what is sort of Scandinavian education more broadly. Uh, how did you get into that field? Um, well, that's a long story. Um, I'm, a for, I'm a former primary early years teacher. And um, when I was an undergraduate, just bear with me. I was studying uh, in Italy, history of art, and I, um, like anyone living abroad at the time, decided to travel around, and I went around um, various countries, and then I got to Germany and Austria, and then I realized I really can't speak very well with people. Um, at the time, I could speak Spanish and Italian, and the Romance languages are a bit easier for me. So when I went back to university, I started taking German and then subsequently went to Vienna to try to brush up on German. And it ended up all of my friends there or almost all my friends there were Swedish. So I just got the ball rolling a bit with um, the Nordic countries and being interested in them. And then I visited my friends there and I just got very interested in the countries in general but then that blossomed into uh, a more academic interest, combining the Nordic countries and then my interest in teaching and education. And then that turned into me deciding I wanted to live in the in Nordic countries and study. I spent a year in Stockholm. And before then, I took Swedish lessons in a place called Åland, which is Finnish. They are Finnish islands, but they are Swedish speaking. So then I got very interested in Finland as well, and specifically their bilingual education. A bilingual country where both speakers of the official languages, Finnish and Swedish, have rights to education, all their education from pre-primary to university level in their mother tongue, whether Finnish or Swedish. That is something I, I didn't know until we talked the other day. Uh, that Swedish language was so, such a part of Finnish mm -hmm. culture, and it's not—it's not a contentious thing. Uh, you, you just generally can—you can say, "Well, I'll be taught in Swedish," and that—that's just fine. Generally, yes. Um, so Finland was a part of the Kingdom of Sweden for six hundred years, and that is why they have the legacy of the Swedish language. So there, I do read historically that there were there were some tensions around the language. I remember reading an academic source that called Swedes benevolent overlords, but um, with the exception of perhaps championing the, the, the use of Finnish as a language. So, yeah, at the time, if you wanted to be educated, um, law, all these things were in, in Swedish, um, which created a real pride in the Finnish language for the Finnish speakers. And they really, I mean, we're going off topic now, but that's okay. Because I like another <laughs> topic. <laughs> we, uh, they're really quite very. They're really different languages. I mean, Finnish is is it is it not Indo-European or something like no, that? No, I mean, it's Finno-Urdric. 
So it's related most closely to Estonian, where you can see a lot of similarities, and then much more distantly Hungarian. So it's very, very different and um, very so unusual. So you spent some time in Finland, you were learning Swedish, and that got your interest. And I think that, did that take you towards a PhD or am I jumping ahead? Um, maybe not too far ahead. So from that, I developed an interest in comparative education. And I was very, so I'm very interested in looking at different education systems from around the world, seeing what's similar, what's different, um, what can or cannot be transferred in terms of policy. And I think what's come about that is really doing a deep dive into socio-cultural and historical contexts of countries, because that really shapes how the education systems were formed. Um, so around the time I was looking at a PhD, I was really interested in having a country with education in two languages. So, you know, the Swedish speaking minority having full rights to education in their mother tongue. And I was discussing this with my future PhD supervisor who suggested, actually, if you're interested in Finland, perhaps it's wise to explore how they have done in PISA. And I said, well, that's a that's an excellent idea. So at the time, um, PISA had had probably two iterations at the time. Yeah, one or two where Finland had scored at the top and people were very, very, very curious as to why Finland scored so well in PISA. Um, which stands for the Program for International Student Assessment. And that's administered by the OECD. So people were just very curious about this. And that became the main topic of my doctoral that took research. You, were you then working at UCL? No, I was a doctoral student there um, at the time. And, so. and subsequently, you've written a couple of books on Finnish yes, education. Yes, I have. Yes. I came across you because your book was recommended to me. One's on teaching, training, and the other's on, on, on again, the Finnish education system. Yes, yeah, so the first one is based mainly on my doctorate, which is basically why has Finland performed so highly in PISA and then um, the policy implications of that. So the, the repercussions of what has happened since PISA burst onto the scene, which is now about 20 years ago. This is the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs, my guest, Dr. Jennifer Chung. We're discussing the Finnish education system. Is it really as good as it sounds? And then what I found, one of my major findings with my doctoral research was the teachers in Finland and the strength and quality of their teacher education. So that became my postdoctoral research was exploring teacher education in Finland. I, I mean, I've never written a book <laughs> and I would imagine it's a sort of a long way from being finished, a long way from being finished. And then suddenly then it's kind of finished a big project. How did you go about writing a book about or two books? about Finnish education? Was that an awful lot of visits to Finland or did you live in Finland for a long time there? I made a lot of visits to Finland. I interviewed teachers. <laughs> I interviewed head teachers. I interviewed ministers of education. And then I interviewed people at the OECD involved with education. 
Um, and then I did observations at various schools, both Swedish speaking and Finnish speaking. Oh, and then for my postdoctoral research, then I went to uh, universities and then what is called the um, normal school. I guess I could go into that a bit more later, but again, interviewed, yeah, teachers, head teachers, lecturers of education, professors of education, and then teacher uh, trainees, so student teachers. Before we get well. into the features of Finnish education, what led you to think about this or what led your supervisor to advise you that it's a good way to go was the PISA scores. PISA, mm -hmm. how reliable is PISA? PISA evaluates. Well, tell me about PISA. <laughs> how does it judge schools? Um, so that's quite interesting. It's very criticized because of A, perhaps its methodology, but also B, its view of education and see what it has done with education policy worldwide. So it measures what they have labeled literacy. So mathematical, scientific, and reading literacy were the three original subjects that they collected data about. And it's for 15-year-olds. So they're really aiming at the end of most countries' compulsory education. One of the criticisms going to be that it doesn't really evaluate things like creativity, art, subjects so well. It's, they're, very, they're very kind of STEMI subjects, um, science and maths and, and literacy, you know, practical. Or are these, is that a good place to narrow? If you're going to compare countries, don't compare too much. I think that's interesting. So what they tried to do was differentiate themselves from other international evaluation systems. So it, their version of literacy is how are you using these in real life? So it was a real-life application of reading literacy, mathematical literacy, and scientific literacy. Um, so there's an association called the IEA, and they have tests called TIMS and PEARLS, and those are much more curriculum-based. So you do have countries that perform differently on TIMS and PEARLS as opposed Before to Before we leave PISA, well, maybe another criticism, or potential criticism, is that you can't always trust what countries say, because it is a league table. So countries that are conscious of their own international image don't necessarily want to, to be seen to be low on PISA. So can you rely on countries, I'm, I'm thinking countries like maybe China, where, you know, so international image is a big thing and falling down the PISA scores wouldn't be, wouldn't be considered a good idea. Yeah, so what's happened with PISA is the creation of an international league table. Um, we have them in this country for, for schools. Um, you increasingly see them in education. So you see university league tables. Within countries, you see them internationally, and then this is um, just one way the OECD is evaluating education systems. So you have the various, PISA is just one assessment that comes out of the OECD. So there, there is a lot of, it does drive a lot of um, policy. It does, there is um, PR, shall we say, um, about a country's education system as shown by PISA. So, and that's really um grasped on by the media. So, you know, after every PISA cycle, the data an, uh, analysis usually takes about a year. So let's say it's PISA 2012, but the data is usually released in December afterwards. So it'll be released December 2013, for example. And then the world's media gets on it. And then you know, I've read here we have proud Finnish students. And oh, on the other end, we have embarrassed, you know, fill in the blank country 
whatever students and it's it's a real driver for the media in terms of how they're portraying how education is in certain countries and as well for politicians I remember talking to teachers in Finland and I said could you cheat on this and they said oh that's interesting you know you get guidance by the OECD somebody's there and say you know get I don't know every third child off the class register or something and you know she said I guess you could cheat if you if you really wanted to so I mean, there is, um, out of China, which is quite curious, they can't sample the entire country. It's a very, very large country, which is a very large population. So they can't make a representative sample of the entire country. So they test what they call um, economies or large cities, such as you know, Shanghai, Beijing, Hong Kong. And what you do have here or there in these big cities are a wealthier and presumably better educated population. So it's it's up for debate. You know, maybe the OECD can't collect data faithfully from the entire country, but is it also a game people are playing, you know, presenting only certain cities with a highly educated population um, and only children in these schools? So it's, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting thing to, to think about in terms of the data gathering. It might be a little bit like if, if um, measuring British education based on just on private schools or something like that. I guess perhaps, yes, yes. Although, um, although if it is the kind of economic areas, the more wealthy areas of China, that's telling us something mm -hmm. interesting about those schools. Mm -hmm. And yes, even, even if Pisa um, said, well, the British public schools are wonderful, then we'd know something we didn't. <laughs> so it wouldn't be entirely useless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and, and if it fits in some sort of narrative like, um, you know, the Americans, after all, the United States, richest country on earth, they surely should be good at education and they turn out never to be quite very good, which is a great, is a great headline. The PISA scores seem to say that Finland is outstanding at education. It, it really is very, very good. And is that still true? I mean, PISA is a few years ago. I mean, I remember hearing about that, which is why I got interested in your book. And the fin Finland just does it really well. And I, and I must admit, I like to hear that in a way that I maybe don't like to hear that about other countries because I, I quite like the sound of the Finnish education system. Is it is it still good? Um, I would say yes. What has happened is the with PISA over the years now, it's making me feel old. It's been about twenty years since the first uh, scores were released, but you have seen a decline in in Finnish scores and um, the rise of East Asian countries and economies um, taking the top positions. I think um, I used to go to conferences and you know there would be representatives from Finland and people would go up to them and say, wow, congratulations. And they'd be, well, for what? You know, so, oh, for peas. Oh. And I said, this is just one test. But, you know, it was, it was really quite something um, in terms of the, the sensation it caused, really, that has lasted for 20 years. Um, I guess to answer your question, it's, you know, having gone to Finland, having seen schools, yeah, I think it's great, honestly. I'm not sure if I've seen anything in a school that would make me say, oh my gosh, it's, it's declined. I think things have happened that um, would make the scores decline or, um, you know, other countries. It might well higher. be a relative decline. In other words, other countries have got better. It might not be that anything has got worse in, in Finland. Of course, that's relevant to a story this week in the news in this country with the Ofsted chief inspector saying that if you don't inspect schools regularly, 
that have been deemed outstanding, they may have declined. You have to keep them on their toes by, by turning up to inspect them regularly. That's a very different form of inspection. That's a sort of disciplinary form of inspection as opposed to an inspection form of inspection. But I don't maybe I don't want to think about that too much. But oh, so oh, I think that's really interesting because the inspection system has done in this country is really insinuate that people don't trust the schools to do do a good job. And so in Finland, they abolished inspections in the 90s. And then now schools, they self-inspect. So they self-assess. They have conversations with themselves and local stakeholders, such as parents and the teachers. And maybe if they're older, some of the students and say, you know, how have we done this year? As opposed to having an external evaluation. Our audience is largely teachers. And I can I can almost hear them all cheering that that that, that simple observation. <laughs> they carry anything away from this. That And as, as you say, the idea that uh, Ofsted tends to see schools as children who you have to keep an eye on so that you know if you, if you leave them for too long they'll have got up to who knows what whereas now when i first started <laughs> teaching i taught in a very progressive school it was this is good on you know 30 years ago 40 years ago and we had a thing called mutual support and observation so one teacher would look at another teacher's class and there was no there was kind of like constructive criticism only please school advisors local authority school advisors who would turn up and tell you about the latest developments in your subject it's a very different approach in finland to inspecting schools yeah, or a non, non-inspection. Uh, I think what you just said reminded me of a first-year teacher that I met. And um, he went to the head teacher and said, I'd rather not use the textbook that we have. I wanted to use technology. I want to use iPads, teach English. I think it was English he was teaching. The teacher said, yeah, I trust you, do it. And this is a first-year teacher, so he's the equivalent of a NQT year. And the head teacher said, do what you want, I trust you. You know, use the iPads, don't use the textbook. You know, I like this creativity. I had a chat with the head teacher and he said, you know, he's his first year. He has these great ideas. It's going to be perfect. No, but he'll be a diamond someday. He just needs to grow. And I thought that's absolutely amazing and fantastic that in your NQT year or equivalent of you tell the head teacher, actually, I think I'd rather do this. I think this will be more effective. And the head teacher yes, says, yeah, do it. I, I can remember, as I say, that being more of a feature of British education. I mean, there were things called mode three exams when I first started teaching, where schools designed their own GCSEs and assessed them themselves. Schools oh, were wow. disempowered from that to the extent when, when during lockdown, should teachers assess students was but of their grades were seen as very, very uh, dangerous. Well, teachers will obviously be giving all sorts of grades to all sorts of students for all sorts of reasons, assuming <laughs> that the system we have isn't, of course, beset with all sorts of unfairnesses and inconsistencies, as it turned out to be when they tried to use an algorithm <laughs> to, to solve that problem. But in Finland, the assumption is that teachers can be trusted and schools, schools can certainly improve, but there's not a suspicion that they must be failing if you take your eyes off. The other example is someone told me about their colleague who is an English teacher as well and noticed that the students wanted to learn. All they wanted to read was Harry Potter. So she said, you know what? Let's do it. Chuck the textbooks. We're going to read Harry Potter. And through Harry Potter, we're going to learn the grammar. We're going to learn the writing. We're going to learn the vocabulary. This is what we're going to do because that's what they, that's what the students want to do. I just thought that was a so brave, be very creative and see, wasn't that fantastic that the school entrusted her to do this? And I think what you mentioned about GCSE is the only standardized test they have in Finland is at the end of the um, academic upper secondary school. And so that's called the matriculation examination. So that comes at about we 18, are 19. One of the most examined countries in the world uh, with SATs and GCSEs and A-levels and so on. What would a Finnish exam look like? What would that exam look like? I don't know, mathematics, science, languages, 
um, history. Mm-hmm. Can't remember quite off the top of my head. I think you have to take it in a few subjects, perhaps like an A level. But I mean, if that's the only one you have your entire schooling, I guess it's a bit different, isn't it? In Germany, there's something called the Abitur exam, maybe more like that. I guess I guess it's kind of the culmination of your upper secondary but education. leaving school without the matriculation, taking the matriculation exam isn't a disaster. Up to 2021, you didn't have to go to upper secondary school. So, And then they have a very developed, um, what is called applied, university applied science or a polytechnic. So they have many um, tertiary education institutions that don't necessarily need the matriculation Again, exam. We talked for. a little bit before, we, before this interview uh, about the difference between the, Brit- the British education system and the Finnish. One of the most striking things is the low status of vocational education in Britain. And try as they may with T mm-hmm. levels and well, S levels, T levels and technical qualifications and after the Second World War, uh, an attempt mm-hmm. to create a, a tripartite system where kids, students would go to academic or secondary modern or um, technical, and none of that, that didn't, it's never really worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the aspiration in Britain has always been, certainly among the middle classes, is an academic education and academic subjects. And that's, uh, for, for better or worse, and uh, I suspect worse, we've not been good at giving technical education or vocational education the, the status that Finnish, the Finns have managed to do. So what are they doing right? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think my years of studying different education systems has really highlighted the importance of high quality vocational education. So you see this in Germanic countries such as Germany, Austria and Switzerland um, have very well developed vocational education programs and they're very well respected. So, for example, I have a friend who is a professor in Switzerland right now. he has colleagues that say, you know, if my child went through the vocational route, I, I have no problem with that. I'd be proud of them. An apprenticeship model in, for example, Germany. In Finland, what they do is at 16, if they want to go to a vocational upper secondary education, they may. They still have to take academic subjects, which is required of them. So I have seen vocational schools, and I have been extremely impressed, much like the rest of the the Finnish education system. So I've seen students learning welding, woodwork, um, what's the word, like being a chef, cookery, hospitality. So um, uh, learning to be a seamstress, upholstery, hairdressing, uh, metalwork. I'm trying to think of everything else. Um, so, and it's been, it's really great for the community. So I have a, some very good Finnish friends. And my friend said her mother will go get her hair done at the vocational school, because it's a bit cheaper. Um, and it's, it's practice for the students. And then they also will buy ready meal, meals made by the students studying uh, the culinary arts. And I've also eaten at restaurants that are run by students. So it's all practice for them. So it's really and quite... It, and it does all, in the end, seem to me to come down to certain social differences between us, between the British and the Finns. And one, of course, is the, the British class system, which pervades everything in a sort of invisible way, but it's the wallpaper behind our whole society in mm-hmm. a way. And the private school system, you mentioned, I think, in our mm-hmm. last conversation, the royal family. And the, the sense that the, the model for the successful person isn't being a welder, unfortunately. Which leads to this question, really. I, mean, we're actually, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I'll ask it anyway. Can, can you compare countries? Because we are, 
Finland's going to do. <laughs> we've got lots more things to say about Finland in a minute. But is it valid to compare two different countries when when it's when class probably doesn't translate um, quite to Finland? Would, would they even understand the British class system? Yes, I, I think so. I feel like um, I've made a career of it. I think where it gets a bit sensitive or a bit, uh, that's the wrong word, a bit, uh, where you have to be careful with your comparisons is just saying, okay, Finland does it like this, let's do it like this. Uh, because what I learned in my doctorate was how deep the sociocultural and historical roots of the education system went. So I, I really had to really deep dive into hundreds of years of Finnish history to uncover, you know, some of these reasons, you know, it wasn't because something happened in 2000 because all the kids did great that year. It was really digging deeper and deeper centuries back into, you know, more of a collective Finnish psyche about how they view education and literacy and uh, pride in their country, all of these things. So yes, we can learn a lot. Um, you can compare, but I think it's, a bit foolhardy to say, okay, let's scrap everything and then let's translate a Finnish textbook into English and that will solve our, our education Let's just do problems. what the Finns so that's do, that kind of... obviously they're doing something very, very, very successfully. But of course, it, it does help if students turn up to school with a family background and a socio-cultural background, which says they want to do well. I mean, one of the things that in the last few years, not the last few years, the, the last decade or so that I was teaching was the observation that white working class boys are the least achieving group within English schools. They, they underachieve every other def defined group, girls, other ethnic groups, anything you care to define, white working class boys. And you say, well, it's not, it wasn't something the school mm -hmm. could easily solve. But for some reason, there was a culture almost, a, a historical mm -hmm. disadvantage, a cultural disadvantage which you couldn't overcome in the classroom very easily. I, probably not even the Finnish method. It was something uniquely British. I would say there is the possibility to implement a policy or a policy inspired by elsewhere, but it requires a very long time to see through. So one, actually, just looking at Finland, they, in the 70s, they decided they're going to academize teacher education. There was a lot of backlash in the society. Oh, it's just teachers. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. I'm sure in your teaching career you oh, got the, the, oh, uh, those who can teacher. do, those who can't teach. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it it was um, okay. Let's we're moving all teacher preparation to a university. So moving out of seminaries and teacher training colleges, and then um, from 1979, all teachers need a master's degree. And there was a lot of naysaying, this is not going to work. Should we move them to a polytechnic? Because this is a more of a applied degree. This is a more practical profession. And there was also even, I, mean, I guess the advantage of having a relatively young country is I was able to speak with one of the original professors of teacher education. And he said, well, one of the things was, okay, well, these teachers, they need to do a master's. It's really hard. It's really rigorous, especially the dissertation. And, you know, should they have a group dissertation? Sort of a bunch of them write one. And it eventually came out that every master's degree should be on par with every other master's degree coming out of the university. So it was a difficult decision. People didn't like it. It's expensive um, because 
Finns pay for, um, they don't pay for their higher education, it's paid by the government. 20-something years later, the PISA scores came out, and then that kind of was the reinforcement for this policy that happened in the 1970s. So policy change can happen, but there has to be long-term vision. So had, you know, in 1981 or something, someone come around and said, nope, we're scrapping this, maybe you would have never seen um, Finnish teacher education come to fruition. So what yeah, it is I today. I completely agree with and recognize what you've just described there as the the feeling that almost anyone can be a teacher. That In my career, I remember the mum's army of school inspectors where they said, well, Ofsted inspectors should include one non-teacher. Someone who's just thought abroad, they were described as people with common sense. And this <laughs> the idea, it's very, very against the, the idea that experts, you can't really trust experts because they're experts. And yeah. What you need is people <laughs> with everyday experience. Or that another time I remember mostly conservative governments would mention things like, would suggest ideas of people coming out of the army would make good teachers and so on. But the, but the, but the people, yes, ex-army chaps, they'd be tough and the kids would respect oh, them. I remember and so this, on. yeah. And the idea being that the, the sort of least person you wanted, or the person you least wanted, was someone who was, their head was in the clouds and academic, academic. Teaching wasn't an academic profession. It was all about getting out on the rugger field and getting boys to jump around and, and so on. That, that idea. I, I, one of my guests recently, and I mentioned, again, I mentioned your book and I mentioned you, it was, it was a chap called Dr. Richard Churches, who's a consultant for the Educational Development Trust. And what he does is tries to do what that organization does is do research in schools using teachers to conduct research into their own practice. And uh, again, that, that he says that one of the one of the effects of that is an empowering effect that teachers then feel in sort of in charge and they can do this sort of thing. They're not simply delivering something prescriptively given to them. This is the Friday morning break with John Gibbs, my guest, Dr. Jennifer Chung. We're discussing the Finnish education system. Is it really as good as it sounds? brought to you in partnership with Jomcat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out! Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading! This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. ITV News reports on the workload of educational psychologists in Gateshead, who say they are overwhelmed as the number of children needing special educational help 
has risen by 117% in eight years. This has placed a strain on SEND services in the area, but the load has been especially large for EPs. Deborah Mason, Service Manager for SEND in Gateshead, said that there had been a wait for some people to complete their doctorate, although assistant ed psychs have been used to enhance the team. This report comes shortly after the Secretary of State for Education in England, Gillian Keegan, sent a message to the education and care sector about SEND reform. In the message, Ms Keegan said she believed that pupils and students should always be able to get a high-quality education and receive the right support. She acknowledged the challenges of a complex system, but said that her department wanted to take time to listen to children and parents, as well as those in the system, before publishing a response to the SEND and Alternative Provision Green Paper. An improvement plan would be published in the new year, she added. Part of the plan would include investing £21 million into training 400 more educational psychologists. For young people in areas like Gateshead, this funding can't come soon enough. The BBC News website reports on claims that the University of Derby has suspended a student for taking her baby into lectures. The female student is halfway through a degree and a tutor had agreed to her taking her son to lectures as a short-term measure but this was later overruled. As the student was breastfeeding, she felt she had no option to continue, but was suspended two weeks ago. The student believes she has been discriminated against because she has a baby, but stated she had never allowed her son to disrupt the learning of others. A university spokesman said areas were available on campus for those who needed to breastfeed, but that taking a baby or child into lectures was not allowed for health and safety reasons. Meanwhile, Ulster University has defended itself against claims that it plans to open a campus in Qatar and that will have a negative impact on LGBTQ rights. The university is due to open the campus in Doha in January next year. Speaking on BBC Radio Ulster, Anna McCulloch, chair of the LGBT Society on the university's Colrain campus, said she is worried that the university is putting financial gain over a community within their community and that it will damage the establishment's reputation. A spokesman for the university said, Ulster University believes that education is a route for societal growth, and that many UK universities had partnerships with countries across the Middle East. In Wales, the government has announced free Welsh lessons will be extended to the entire education workforce, including non-teaching staff. Alongside this, a new framework for Welsh in English medium schools has been published underlining how the Welsh language is integral to the new curriculum for Wales. A sabbatical course is also available for teachers to learn or improve their Welsh. Minister for Education and Welsh Language Jeremy Miles said, We want everyone to enjoy using the Welsh language. We are ambitious for our language and I am pleased to be able to extend the offer of free Welsh lessons to all school staff. Finally, in a week that saw the release of Department for Education statistics, which show a 20% drop in those entering the teaching profession, many media outlets comment on the possible impact on young people. The number of entrants to initial teacher training fell from 36,159 to 28,999 between 2021 and 22 and the 2022 to 23 training years. 
The government attributed the fall to the reduced number of new entrants and an increase in the target. But critics pointed out that the government's recruitment targets for secondary school teacher training has been missed in nine out of the last ten years. A DfE spokesperson said, For teacher trainees in 2023, bursaries and scholarships in key subjects will be available, and we remain committed to raising the starting salary to £30,000. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, did you get a bargain on Black Friday? This week I'm going to talk about deals. First, a little bit of history. Tom will be proud of me. Read it up on Wikipedia and seriously condensing what I found, the term Black Friday refers to the Friday after Thanksgiving when the Christmas shopping season starts. Supposedly, it started in the 1950s. Recently, it marked a time of serious bargains, riots and fighting for unbelievable deals. However, are you getting a bargain or are you just led to believe it? Seeing as last Friday was Black Friday, which began last Monday, and next week will still be Black Friday, or for some stores Cyber Monday or Cyber Week, when you get the best deals online, how do you know a price drop? is actually a deal. Well, the short answer is you don't. I have a couple of pointers here that may help you, but the underlying advice is buyer beware. If I go with the best known online retailer, when using Amazon, there's a nifty little price tracking website called Camel Camel Camel. This will show you the price data for a product over the time it's been advertised. You can see when it was more expensive and less expensive. If you're on your phone, where most shopping takes place, hit the share icon found next to the product image, go to Camel 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 and paste it into the search box. You can even sign up to email alerts for price drops and add target discount alerts if you're not in a desperate hurry for an item. The next trick is to simply do a web search for the product. You may find it cheaper in a large supermarket store and although you may need to go and collect it to save on postage, it may be worth the journey. There's also hundreds of coupon and price comparison sites where you may be able to find further discounts. The only caveat being the time you spend researching may actually outweigh the saving you make. I return to my initial warning. Buyer beware. I hope you get a deal leading up to the holiday season. As always, I'd love to hear your favourite shopping online tips. Let us know at TTR 2022. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. So Finnish teachers are encouraged also to, to be reflective all their career, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. I think that's one of the main... Um, I guess the main point, what, not the main point, but one of the main things they want to instill in their future teachers is critical reflection. So, um, yeah, that's, I think it's really interesting, the notion of critical reflection, because they don't have that much time in schools required for their degree. So they have, um, they've erred on the side of more theory, more academics, and less practice. But what they what they say is we give them the tools, the research tools, so you can go and find academic articles to help support you in your in your thought, the critical reflection you need on your own practice, but then your career is for practice. So we give you everything you need. There's um, actually no required professional development after you get your, your We've master's. Gone completely in the opposite direction where teacher training is increasingly, well, the way to teach teachers is to get them in the classroom teaching. And we don't want them sitting in lecture halls or reflecting too much or reading too many books. Just get them in front of the kids and they'll learn how to do it. Again, turning teachers into kind of uh, plumbers, in a sense. They, they, it's, a, it's a thing you need. You need to learn the technique 
it's all about technique and not about, not mm-hmm. about academia or ideas or philo- or, or theory. And I, of course, there's a, a this is probably a great moment to drop in the big jaw dropper that you told mm-hmm. me the other day. Is it true that it's harder to become a teacher in Finland than it is to become a doctor? Yes, at least at one university that was cited in an article in 2014. But it's absolutely mind-boggling, actually. <laughs> when I read it, I, I I still think about it. I read that article years ago, and it just still, it in my head, is kind of spinning around. It, it's just absolutely mind-blowing. But then it, it tells you a lot about yes, absolutely the popularity of teaching and the esteem of teaching. So it's for primary teaching at one of the universities in Finland, which is considered the most prestigious. So it's harder to get into primary teaching than it is into medicine at that university. And so primary teaching is so popular that it's about 10% acceptance rate. So it's highly competitive to become a primary teacher. Um, And when you become a primary teacher, you're someone of some social significance. And of course, that shouldn't be in any way other than, I mean, I I taught mostly in sixth forms and my brief experience of teaching in a primary school made me realize that it was utterly impossible for me to do that because it was far too difficult and is far too technical. And is certainly not something a well-meaning mum can turn up on a Wednesday afternoon and give it a bit of a go. It's it's an extraordinarily complex (laughs) task. This is the Friday morning break with John Gibbs, my guest, Dr. Jennifer Chung. We're discussing the Finnish education system. Is it really as good as it sounds? You've clearly looked a lot at teaching ed, at teacher training, and um, what's the, what is a normal school? What is, what is the, the so it's akin to a lab school as well. Um, so it is the official school where student teachers take their teaching practice. So they are affiliated with the university. So it's funded through the university. It's not funded by the municipality. So that gives it a different angle, I guess, than what they will call a municipal school in Finland. So it's officially part of the university. And that's where the majority of teaching practice takes place. Um, so you have them so from kind of teacher training schools in the sense that they're a school, but they're specialists and linked to a university. Yes, and what they do yes. is train teachers. Yes. So um, it was the 2010 white paper where this was cited. These normal mm-hmm. schools were cited as good practice. And it was saying that we would like to launch these university training schools. So what I saw in these normal schools was absolutely mind blowing actually so the head of the school usually has a phd perhaps they've been an academic as well i see what i saw was a lot of movement between the faculties of teacher education and then the teachers at the school i met one of the teachers i said oh i used to be one of the lecturers of you know blank education english teacher education or mathematics or whatever primary whatever it was i've met a bunch of teachers that had done that and then I also met lecturers at the university who had been teachers at the normal school. So you get a very close connection between the theory and the and practice. And I'm going to suggest that that's not so clear in this country. There's a there's more of a divide between the academic who thinks about the theory of education and the teachers who deliver it. And often they don't, they're two worlds that don't always mm-hmm. cross over. The 
percentage of teachers or the proportion of teachers at these normal schools, there will be a high proportion with higher than master's degree. So you have, it's called the licentiate degree. So that's in between a master's and a PhD. And there are also teachers with PhDs as well. So it's very academic. I've, I've met um, um, teachers that are producing their own research. I met someone, one of the teachers, he heads a research center at the university. So these are really, really academic people that are within the school. So the, the culture of the school is, is uh, just very, very intellectually, they very academic. Still going out on a Wednesday afternoon or a Friday morning and teaching a class and marking the home. Well, I'm going to say marking the homework as a sort of indicator of the everyday uh, work of teachers. But of course, Finnish schools don't set as much homework as we do. Or do they? Um, that's in primary schools. and it's, it's up to the school. So it's very decentralized. I think that's a, another major point. So there's what is called the national core curriculum. And it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's up to the school or sorry, it's up to the municipality to see how they carry that out. But that's really devolved into the school level with the head teachers. But then the head teachers will say, I just tell the teachers do what you want. Again, it's up to the school. So it's, it's a bit harder to generalize about about homework. From an English perspective, I think they would, people would find schools quite relaxed. Yeah, that's interesting because the, the sort of narrative and the, again, the language of education in this country during lockdown, before lockdown, I was struck a couple of years ago by uh, a snow day. There was, um, the, the weather was particularly bad and schools were being closed because of snow and a head teacher was being interviewed. He said, well, he said, I'm not closing the schools. He said, well, I don't think of closing the schools. He said, well, I want students in school learning. And it seemed to me to sum a culture up in this country mm -hmm. in which, if anything, the school day, if it is talked about at all, it's talked about being longer. And if homework is talked about at all, it's talked about doing setting more of it and earlier. So, but the finished school day is quite short. And homework, as we said, may, may or may not be, but it's certainly not emphasised the way we emphasise it. No. Last time I checked, it was... Finland had the shortest school day in the OECD, so among OECD countries. countries, um, I was joking last time we chatted, um, you'll see small children kind of walking around, a school age, sorry, and then you know, kind of think to yourself, why aren't you in school? But actually school ended a while ago, so that's why that's why you're not in school. The school day is quite short. I think short. if teachers look honestly at what they do in the school day and students when they return home in the evening and you ask them about what they've done there's an awful mm -hmm. lot of repetition an awful lot of wasted time and it's, it's something mm -hmm. teachers don't like to, to admit I think is that school you could do an awful lot more in an, in an awful lot less time if you taught differently and allowed the school to be rich richer in experience it could be a whole lot shorter Let's think about other things about the Finnish education system. So we talk about it, um, the school day and homework and teacher training. The, the There's an emphasis, I think, also on variety during the school day, on sort of creativity. More generally in the world, there's been kind of a narrowing of the curriculum to these core subjects. But I just think what I saw was a lot of um, autonomy and freedom and trust. Yeah, I saw supervisions as well. And then um, it really struck me there was one mentor teacher and she said her whole thing was, what is your pedagogical point? She said, I don't tell them how to do things. You do it as you want. You find your own style. My style is not your style. But always remember, what is the pedagogical yes, point? Yes, and a discussion I had again with Dr. Churches the other day with, with Richard Churches. He was saying that one of the features of a successful ed education was 
was that when teachers knew where the lesson was going, even though they had all their own styles and ways of getting there, a good lesson seemed to, seemed to have a purpose that the students could articulate and the teacher could articulate. But, but other than that, there was no formula. I reminisced the other day about when I was teaching in a school that wasn't doing well, and it was, it was the, there was discipline problems and so on. And every teacher was issued with a small plastic card of responses to student behaviour so that we would all say the same things if you saw a student misbehaving. And this had come from a, a consultancy that they did hired at the school that, to try and advise them on improving student behaviour. And they said, well, these are certain non-confrontational standard responses that all teachers should use. And I thought, well, this is the end. <laughs> this is the final, the final affirmation that teachers are simply automata and not actually engaged in anything independent at all. It was a script, and uh, as anyone who's tried to copy a successful teacher or be, you know, follow, follow a, this, this is how to teach. There is no absolute answer on how to do that. Finnish education then is successful in the sense that they, they're producing students who are scoring extremely high in PISA scores. They are, they're academically successful. Do students enjoy school in Finland? I mean, it's school. I think people used to ask me, like, what are they doing? You know, it's a shining beacon of, I don't know, doing progressive education. Is it this? Is it this? And it's school. You know, I've seen very traditional schools. I've, I've seen people be a bit more creative about it. I think there's not this very East Asian extrinsic motivation and like uh, parental pressure that I do not see in the least. Well, the other extreme is the sort of South Korea leaving school at four in the afternoon. And then you go back to do two or three hours evening school on top. Uh, that, that intense, intense, intense. So to sum up, the Finns, they've managed to give teachers a high status, a high level of based on a rigorous training, uh, an emphasis on academia and ideas, which are unafraid of. The school day is shorter. There's not such a great emphasis on intense homework, although that may be varied. They don't have a school uniform. No, it's actually illegal. Yeah, I, I'm guessing that's wor worries about militarizing kids. How do they address their teachers? Is it sir, miss, or first names? First name. Yeah, I, I again. I taught at a school where it's first first names and no uniforms, and oh, now it's for, it's it's uh, miss and uniforms, of course, because and that was considered enormously out there, the wacky end of extremely strange. I, actually, I'll, I'll share one anecdote with you. I remember when I first started teaching at that school, it was a very very progressive school, and it was a sunny afternoon, and I hadn't been teaching the school long, and a boy said, "We were teaching ancient history." And the boy said to me, he said, oh, there's a, there's a Roman ruins near my house. And I knew there was in the town somewhere. I said, oh, is that right by where you live? He said, oh, yes, it's right by my house. I said, well, take us there. So we all left the classroom, the entire class, 30 kids and just me. And we went across the town, went to the Roman ruin, had a look, sat down, had a talk about it and came back to the school. I'd probably be fired on five different re <laughs> for five different reasons if I tried to do a thing like that today. There was a great, there was a great deal of freedom. I'm not saying you should necessarily walk out of a school with 30 kids, but hey, it was, it was, it was the way it was. If there was one thing that we could uh, translate, and I, again, anyone listening to this might say, well, all that's going to work in Finland. 
could it work here? If there was one thing we could learn and you could say, well, do this, what, would, there be a, would there be a thing like that? I would say trust in teachers. I think that was one of the most poignant things I carried away from my doctorate was the trust and respect that teachers have in the society is amazing. Giving them the autonomy to do as they see fit is the, to me, I would say the, the thing we should take out of it, take, take away from Finland. Three cheers to that for me and all the teaching profession. <laughs> and uh, I, when I think of the initiative of Teach First, Teach First, where you get high-flying graduates to do a bit of teaching for a couple of years. And I think the, the, any society that suggests that you should teach first implies that that wouldn't be something you'd want to do. Teach, before, teach first before you do other things. Obviously, this isn't what you'd want to do, but give it a go. You know, teach first isn't something you implore high graduates to do. It's something they want to do and maybe have to struggle to get into because <laughs> it's so high status. Oh, if, if only we could do that. Well, thank you so much for this. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. And that brings this week's episode of the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs almost to a close. Just got time to think about some of the things I've heard today. I hope you enjoyed listening to Jennifer Chung. I certainly learned a lot. Clearly, the schools in Finland are very good, even by the measure of Pisa and with its faults. It's clear that the Finns don't necessarily follow progressive education or traditional, but they do allow schools to teach, which seems like perfectly straightforward idea. In other words, I haven't so much learned what schools are for this week as what schools can be. Schools can be places where professional people are allowed to teach according to their own expertise. They can be trusted to do so in an atmosphere and a culture which respects teachers and sees teaching and schools as something we can trust. Like all really big ideas, it is, of course, blindingly obvious and really rather simple. You can find this podcast on Spotify, on YouTube, and many other platforms, if you wish to listen to it again, or recommend it to others on social media. My next show will be on the 6th of January where my guest will be Professor Jan Garmen Yamat, a professor of education at UCL, and he has carried out some very interesting research into schools as creators of national identity and promoting a sense of social cohesion, with some fascinating conclusions about the impact in Britain of our schools and our class system. On the 20th of January, my guest will be Bridget Knight, head teacher, school advisor, and author, and we'll be discussing her book on the subject of values and the value of subjects, a practical guide to value-based education. Please join me for either or both of these shows, where you can listen to them as they are played at the scheduled time on a Friday morning at 11 o'clock, or later as a podcast. If you have questions, suggestions, or you'd like to be a guest, 
as I continue to explore every second Friday what schools are for by interviewing expert guests, people with direct experience of teaching, academics and authors. If you are such a person or you know of someone, please contact them and put them in touch with me. And since I won't see you to January, have a very happy and enjoyable Christmas, holiday, vacation, break. Well deserved. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.